Welcome, we're live. Mike Crawford, Young Jerks. Promise you another special show tonight. It is a special show. We have a guest uh, waiting patiently. We're already talking. I can't wait to get her on. I'm going to get her on right now. I don't even want to wait. We're going to talk a lot about uh, Massachusetts politics. There's things happen on the mayoral race. I say a race. We, I mean, it's a race now. It's a, It was already a race, and now it's a real race because... We don't even know who's running. There's so many people that may and may not be running. We're going to find out tonight uh, what Calla Walsh thinks. Here she is. Calla Walsh, welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. I think I hit the, I got so excited, I hit the button early because I was me- meaning to give you like a big introduction. <laughs> don't worry. I don't need a big one. Well, you know what? You, uh, can you do it for us? Because I think you're, 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 you would do it better than I will. Yeah, of course. Um, so my name is Kala. Uh, she, her pronouns. I'm 16. I live in Cambridge and I have been active in Massachusetts politics um, for about two years now, I guess. Um, and most of my involvement has been working on campaigns, um, you know, advocating for candidates like Ed Markey, Elizabeth Warren, Jordan Meehan, um, and also doing some more issue focused work um, like with the climate strike. And now I'm organizing with Act on Mass um, for more transparency in the state house. So, um, yeah, I've been following all the races and all, you know, the drama that's developed in the past few weeks. Um, and I'm really excited to be here and talk more. I can't wait. Cause like I was thinking just the last couple of days, like who it, it dawned on me because how much I retweet your stuff. <laughs> like, I was just like, who do I retweet more than Cala right now? And I was like, Shaleen title and you are like the top two. Like if, if it's cannabis, it's Shaleen. I'm always retweeting almost everything she posts. And the same with you on the mass poli, you know, what do we say? Mass poli, mass Mapoli. poli. What is it? It's Mapoli. Mapoli. Thank you. Italy, but with an M. Yeah. yeah. Mapoli. So the Ma- Mapoli, the hashtag Mapoli, it's, it's always you. So I'm always retweeting. And I was like, man, I got to get her on the show. Cause you provide so much information. I started off. I don't know if we want to talk about him right now to even kick it off. Valentino, how do we say his last name? Capo Bianco? Yep, you got it right. I did. He's, he's had some interesting tweets. I think we should talk about him tonight. I want to talk about the mayor's race. I want to talk about the governor's race. But I think to open up, we should definitely talk about the topic of the day in America, the topic of the day in the whole world probably at this point, is what just happened in Washington, D.C. and the coup. I know you've been posting a lot of videos and stories. What do you, what's your takeaway and what do you want to say about all of that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many different takeaways and things to think about. Uh, I definitely say weeks like these, I'm really grateful to be represented by someone like Ayanna Presley, who has been really doing the most, um, you know, to push for impeachment and removal, the expulsion of um, the Republicans who were seditionists and also an investigation and how, to the, and how the Capitol Police were involved. Um, I think anyone who isn't pushing for serious consequences and like fundamental change, like abolishing the electoral college, like she is, um, is going to end up being you know, just as complicit as all the Republicans were, because that sets such a dangerous precedent that, um, you know, these events are okay moving forward and that any commander in chief can just incite a coup and get away with it. So I really think um, getting punishment and accountability is going to be super important. And also then, you know, creating the fundamental change we need so this stops happening. Um, I guess some of my biggest takeaways would be one, um, you know, everyone keeps saying, you know, we're so shocked, we're so surprised. But I think 
we really have to have seen this coming um, and saying that, you know, no one was expecting this or we can't believe it happens. That sort of delegitimizes um, a lot of experiences, especially of people of color who've been targeted and um, brutalized by the Trump administration since day one. I think we really had to have seen this coming. Um, and yeah, I think also the fact that so many people are saying this isn't who we are, you know, this isn't American. Um, Joe Biden said that in his speech right after um, on Wednesday. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that this is who we are. Um, we're never going to be able to move on and um, actually, you know, improve conditions if we don't acknowledge that this is who we are and that, um, you know, white supremacy and fascism and violence are very, very American. Um, and, you know, it's really dangerous to suggest that they aren't because that, you know, denies hundreds of years of history. And so I think acknowledging that is the only thing we can do to even remotely begin to move on and recover. Now I'm, I'm in awe of you. I, I'm in awe of you like a lot of young people because I compare everything to my own experience all the time. And I look at myself at 16 I was very interested in politics and but I had none of the the worldliness, the knowledge, the information, the insight. How did you get to be the way you are right now at 16 and be like so informed and to be somebody that like it's not just because you're 16 that people are excited that you're involved. Like you you provide information that you don't find like anywhere else. Like and you really go after a lot of these folks and bust their balls. I'm going to say that. Um how did you get here? How, how did you get here, Calla Walsh? Yeah, so I think the fact that Trump became president, you know, I was 12 when he was elected. Um, the fact that he became president at the same time where I was starting to learn about government and politics in school really did make an impact on, you know, the way I viewed these issues and my own interaction with government and politics and elections. Um, so the first time I ever knocked doors or volunteered for a campaign was um, for the Yes on Three campaign in 2018. And that was a midterm race for ballot question that reaffirmed transgender rights. Um, and I thought that was a really important issue. So I went, um, knocked doors. Um, I think I was like one of the only young people there, but I really saw when that question won um, that I could it actually- won big. It yeah, won big. It won by like over 60%, which is awesome. And I saw that I could actually make an impact. Um, and I didn't want to feel like I was just sitting back, you know, watching from the sidelines as I felt like the country was falling apart. And um, especially with issues like climate and gun control issues that I felt very impacted by as a young person, I didn't want to feel like I was just sitting back and doing nothing. So even if it was making some calls or going to a protest, um, that did a lot, I think, for me personally to just feel like I was doing what I could um, to make a change. And I guess the Elizabeth Warren campaign was one that really woke me up um, because that was an issue that um, or a candidate that I felt so passionate about and really worked super hard for um, all through Super Tuesday. And afterwards, I realized that campaigns were actually super fun. Um, campaigns were something that I enjoyed and would want to do for other candidates too. And um, working for Elizabeth um, connected me with you know the Markey campaign, Jordan Meehan campaign, and a lot of other young organizers who, after she dropped out, wanted to you know keep fighting for um, other progressive candidates. Getting a lot of comments here. Um... Yeah, it's, 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 you know, one of the questions we had, yeah, I'm going to put this one up. I, I like to ask her, would you like to start a new party? What do you think about that question? That's a good question. And just to preface, I'm not an expert on this issue at all. And I think there's a lot of different, you know, good options for 
um, working outside of the two-party system, which personally I don't believe in because I think, um, you know, the capitalist and imperialist country that America is does sort of force both parties to work for the ruling class, whether one is, um, you know, the Democratic Party. Obviously, I'm like, or I'm a pre-registered Democrat. I'm 16, so I'm not registered yet. Um, but the Democratic Party definitely, um, you know, fights for social justice, fights for these issues more, but um, both ultimately, in my view, you know, uphold the ruling class, uphold capitalism, uphold imperialism, and serve the 1%. And so I think um, that we do really need to create um, a viable left party. I think that comes from um, a lot of working with the Democratic Party and trying to push people who are already Democrats further left. So I don't necessarily think, you know, starting um, a new party all on its own right now is the best solution to that. And I think we need to take away power from the Republican Party, which has lost all legitimacy and also create more viable opposition um, from the left. I'm a DSA member and I think DSA does a lot of good work by running DSA candidates um, in democratic primaries and really creating um, like institutional opposition from the left. Um, but yeah, I think the two party system isn't working for anyone. That's part of the reason why I really supported the ranked choice voting initiative in Massachusetts, which I'm really sad lost, but I think that we need to create pathways for candidates who don't feel represented by either party to still be able to run and win and serve in office. And uh, we have a comment agreeing with you. It's exactly who America is and has been, which that's when I, when I look at uh, what I see the videos, I say, that's America. That is like, that is a reflection of, of who we are. And we've been seeing it in the local town, Facebook groups. We've been seeing it at local protests we've been documenting it we've been interviewing folks who are experts on this stuff locally who told us it was happening and they predicted that it would get worse and guess what they were all right so um with the young jerks i'm sorry Kala, do you have something to say on that yeah i was just gonna say i think some of the pictures like you were talking about the ones that stood out to me the most were people you know waving confederate flags um you know, throwing stuff around, um, attacking each other. Um, and behind them on the walls of the Capitol were pictures of very similar scenes of, you know, American soldiers attacking Native Americans or, um, you know, fighting, um, fighting in different wars. And it really just shows you how this violence, this white supremacist violence, with this white supremacist violence is, you know, a very, very common pattern in American history. And it's really interesting to see those images juxtaposed. Well, we got more comments. Another question, too. Uh, she's asking um, Hillary Diane, who has done some great work. She actually helped uh, pass a hemp bill for local hemp farmers at the state house recently. She asked, uh, what about ranked choice voting? What do you think about that? Yeah, I was a big supporter of the ranked choice voting campaign. Uh, did some volunteering for them, and I was really sad that it lost. Um, I'm a big supporter of ranked choice voting. We actually have it in our um, municipal elections in Cambridge, where I live. And it does enable a really big um, and diverse slate of candidates to run, and especially candidates who might not have as much experience running for office, don't have um, a ton of money on hand to still run and win. Um, but ultimately, I think ring choice voting is about getting the most popular candidate who's widely supported elected. And we've seen in a lot of recent elections in Massachusetts, um, you know, in 2018 in the third district, um, this year in the fourth district, candidates will win by like 22% with like 22% of the vote. And they're really not the candidates that represent the most, um, the most of the district. So um, 
what I think didn't cause it to pass. Um, I think there needed to be more education um, about it. A lot of people didn't understand. I talked to people who were like, oh, I didn't get that question, so I just voted no for it. And then once I explained it to them, they said, oh, that's something I would totally support, but I just didn't know what it meant. Um, the campaign spent a ton of money, so I think there should have been you know, more outreach, especially in gateway cities, um, really about voter education because ballot questions are sometimes phrased in a really confusing way that's hard to understand. Um, so I think, yeah, doing more education about it. Massachusetts is such a highly educated state. So I think people might have just been expected to understand it, but it is kind of a confusing concept, especially for first time voters or people who are voting um, and don't often or don't understand it as well. So um, I hope it's on the ballot again at some point, but yeah, it is a shame that it didn't pass this year. Yeah, it's, it really was a missed opportunity, but um, it's, that's the issue. It's like when you have to explain something to people, that becomes a problem, fortunately. We have, I just know I just put her up there, even though she just wrote her name. I'm wondering what that means. Is she running for a uh, mayor? Uh, one, one of our past guests who we, we love, uh, city councilor at large, Boston city councilor at large, Julia Mejia, just posted a comment. And she posted her name, and I'm wondering what that means. Well, let's just go to the you know Boston mayor's race, because this is the – I'm circling it. Like with my cursor, people probably can't see that, but I want to know if Julie is running because everyone else is running, and and I love some of the campaigns, and I know you do, um, but you know Julia, I just love what she's been doing lately, and I you know love her always on our show. What what do you what what are your comments on this mayor's race, Calla Walsh, Boston mayor's race? Marty Walsh has just recently announced he's he's going to be taking a position with uh, Joe Biden's labor labor as as his labor secretary. What do you think, Calla? So um, I definitely don't think that Marty Walsh was the best option for labor secretary. So I guess I apologize to the rest of the country when I say I'm thrilled for Boston um, and for what this means for the mayor's race. Um, I think he was gonna be a really hard candidate to beat. And the fact that um, the seat is now open, I think we still need to really, um, I don't know, appreciate how Michelle Wu and Andrea Campbell jumped in before this was an open field, before um, they weren't going up against someone who had millions of dollars in his campaign account, um, because that was, you know, really, oh, um, Councillor McKee just left um, a comment. Yeah, I do think people assume that Massachusetts is a highly educated state, but they didn't do enough education, um, like voter education, to um, the places that needed it. Um, but yeah, I think that, um, the fact that Michelle Wu and Andrea Campbell jumped in before this was an open field really shows how committed they are to actually making change um, in Boston, whether um, it's just for their, it's not just for, you know, their own political gain. Um, and I guess I'm supporting Michelle Wu. I think she's the only candidate who has proposed, um, you know, plans so far that Boston really needs, um, like a citywide Green New Deal, um, fair free public transit, abolishing the BPDA. Um, really, you know, big structural change, like Elizabeth Warren says, who endorsed her today. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing um, more comprehensive plans, you know, to defund the police, zoning reform, um, a lot of issues that need to be addressed. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing who else jumps in. I think it's likely going to be a crowded field. Um, and I just hope that every campaign, you know, centers people in Boston, listens to their voices um, and keeps, um, you know, developing um developing more policy plans um especially you know with recovering from covid you got more questions someone's asking who would be the dark horse candidate for mayor's race i also want to add in 
Uh, you mentioned that you're supporting Michelle Wu, which I think is a fine choice. I definitely like Michelle Wu uh, for Boston mayor. Are there, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you have an answer for this. Are there any people who shouldn't run? <laughs> we, I, I almost never say that, but in such a crowded field and especially among the women that are running, I, I feel like this is a, a good question to ask. Are there campaigns that you don't like that are you, you you're looking at just being like, oh, why are they running? Or why yeah. are they even considering running? Um, absolutely. I think a lot of the people considering shouldn't jump in. Um, specifically, I don't think any cops should be running um, at this moment where we've really seen um, the harm that policing does to our communities, um, over police communities in Boston. I think it's pretty offensive for any cop to even, you know, suggest that they would be running for mayor. Um, and I don't think they would win if they did. But um yeah, I don't think um, any cops or people who work for um, the police should run. And um, I also think the Health Ways and Means Chair, um, Aaron Mikluitz, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. I don't think he should run either. Um, he is, you know, part of the state house establishment, has done a lot of harm, you know, in letting the eviction moratorium expire and um, not, you know, passing along progressive legislation through his committee, which is arguably the most powerful in the state house. Um, and so I don't think he should run either just because he hasn't been a good leader in the state house. And I don't believe that he would do the same um, in Boston. You bring in like facts and opinion hard today. I love it. And you're very nice about it. <laughs> I love it. This is unbelievable. Um, so, you know, what about dark horse candidate? He's asking about a dark horse candidate for the mayor's race. Is there somebody besides Michelle Wu that you're kind of looking at, or you think might do better than people think or, that is going to run. I know Anissa Asaibi George has been floated um, as a potential candidate, and some Marty Walsh aides um, have already um, like voiced support for her. Um, personally, I don't think someone who opposes, you know, reforming the exam schools process, who didn't vote to, um, who voted yes on the police budget rather than no, um, that's not really what I'm looking for in a candidate. Um, and some people are posing her as the likely successor to Marty Walsh. And I really was not a fan of Marty Walsh at all. So um, that's probably someone that I think would have a good chance, but um, not necessarily who I would support. And uh, getting more comments. I'm just flashing some of them up. Uh, I, maybe I should read some more too. Here's, here's a good question. What do you think mayoral candidates need to do to win the youth vote in Boston? That is a great question. Um, first of all, I think, no one can win the youth vote without supporting the issues that youth care about and um, releasing, you know, comprehensive plans on how you'll improve education, schooling, um, especially climate is an issue that young people really care about. Um, you have to have plans and um, ideas for how to win young people over. And it's not just about, you know, asking them to vote for you, but it's also about listening to them and asking them what they want to see in a candidate and really earning their support. Um, I also think that doing outreach to young people is really important. Um, and often campaigns in Boston just reach out to students at like Northeastern and Harvard and BU and not really to public school students or um, people at like community colleges. Um, so I think that's also really important to win the youth vote is to reach out to people who have grown up in Boston and um, you know have the lived experiences of being a young person um, in the city is really important. It's so obvious, reach out to them like any other voting constituency, but they, so many campaigns in the past haven't done that. Right. Is that, I mean, that's really what it, 
they're looking at numbers and saying young people didn't vote in the past, so we're not going to even bother. And yeah. um, now that's kind of been flipped on its head. Yeah. A youth vote is an issue that I'm really passionate about. Um, I'm actually getting ready to teach a class um, for this organization called Movement School on how to win the youth vote. And I think it's funny because campaigns often just look at it as a mystery, like, oh, how do we get the young people to possibly vote? But it's really not that much of a mystery. And young people are so, so well informed um, just from having grown up in the digital age. And campaigns genuinely just don't reach out to us or just don't, you know, support anything that we care about. And then they act surprised, um, you know, when we don't vote. So like the Democratic Party, for example, they are um, obviously like the biggest political party. Um, most young people support them and they don't even have a TikTok account, which is like the main platform that youth use to communicate. So um, I really wish that, you know, people just try to reach us on the platforms that we use and, you know, talk to us in language that we understand. Um, I think that's a really basic um, and overlooked step to winning the youth vote. Um, other comments too, uh, city councilor Julia Mejia said, we need a black brown agenda. And uh, she's also talking about the, the, you know, violence is still a big issue. And I, I think those are like near my, you know, at the top, I love a lot of the work that she's doing. Um, do you agree? I think you do on that, Calla. Absolutely. Yeah, I've I've been seeing the reports, like you were saying, um, where crime has gone up so much this past year, and I think a lot of it is just because we're putting money towards over policing communities and not um, into actual the social into the social services like education and healthcare and housing that um, actually do end up preventing crime. So yeah, I agree with that, and um, absolutely. Now I want to talk about this uh, Valentino. They call him Tino on Twitter. I noticed this from you first. You, you've been posting a lot of his old Twitter posts from 2011, this one. Um, how did you find out about this? Because he he's currently, what's his position and what is he running for? Tell us about this. Yeah, so um, Valentino is a Democratic State Committee man for my state Senate district. So I'm in Cambridge and the state Senate district includes part of Winthrop. So um, he's like the state committee man that represents me on the um, Democratic State Committee with Mass Dems. He's also chief of staff to a pretty powerful state senator, Paul Feeney. Um, and I guess he first got on my radar um, on Columbus Day when he got in um, sort of a Twitter fight um, about sort of um, whether we should celebrate Columbus Day, like Italian pride and all that with my friend who's a tribe member um, and said some pretty offensive stuff. And um, yeah, I know a lot of people don't think tweets matter and think, oh, these screenshots don't mean anything. But I think, I don't know if someone's, you know, promoting sexist and racist, xenophobic, predatory um, rhetoric online publicly that just really makes me nervous as to what they're saying privately, you know, when they think no one is watching. And anyone who jokes about this sort of stuff, you know, like sexually harassing women um, or using offensive terms uh, to describe undocumented people, I don't think um, anyone deserves to be in a position of power um, as like a state committee man, as a chief of staff to a state senator, let alone a state representative in a really high profile race. Um, so yeah, that would be my take on um on these tweets now we're going to read a few of them back i know people can read them on the screen but for our podcast listener listeners later uh he writes in one tweet yeah i do not support in-state tuition benefits for illegals which is going to be a tough sell in a minority district he also writes uh getting used to flirting with a starbucks starbucks girl every day 
Uh, he also wrote, soon as you buy that wine, I creep up from behind you, ask about your interests, what to dial things that make you smile. Like he, a lot of creepy, weird stuff. Has he commented on any of this? Not that I know of. Um, nothing publicly. And um, I think that's also pretty concerning because this is the sort of thing that is very easy to apologize for. And instead he began to delete the tweets that first night that they were made public. Um, so that is really unfortunate. Um, and I think a lot of people have tried to make this a thing like, oh, Marky versus Kennedy, since he was a big Kennedy supporter. I was obviously a Marky supporter. And so were some of the other candidates that are running in the 19th Suffolk District. But I really don't think it matters who he supported in the Senate primary. Um, I think simply asking you know, for an apology for using um, these offensive terms and um, suggesting really disgusting things about women um, is needed. And obviously, he has chosen not to take that route and instead is continuing his campaign like this never happened. Nothing happened. That, that's my problem with him. And it's not the Kennedy versus Markey because I could care less. Like, I, I have plenty of friends who supported Joe Kennedy that I will still say great things about, like Tito Jackson, you know, so has nothing to do with that for me. I like Joe Kennedy to a, to a, you know, to an extent. I like that he came around on certain issues like cannabis. Yeah. You know, he wasn't perfect. He wasn't ever perfect before that. I just happen to like Ed Markey a whole lot more, but it has nothing to do with that. It's just the fact that you did this stuff. And it's open and out there, and now you're pretending it didn't happen, and you want to run for public office. That doesn't bode well for you. Exactly. Uh, we're the Young Jerks. We're with Calla Walsh right now. Uh, we're just talking about some tweets from someone who's running for public office right now in Massachusetts. I want to talk about the governor's race because that's going to be, I think, a big one. And it's kind of wide open. People aren't really talking about it. Do you think... Governor Baker is, you know, has other ideas. He's going to run for office again. Who's going to run against him? What are we going to do? Yeah, I honestly don't know if Charlie Baker will seek another term. Just looking at his fundraising, he's definitely been doing less around this time than he did last cycle when he was preparing to run for re-election. Um, and Karen Polito has been fundraising a lot more. So I think it's totally possible that he would retire, like go into the private sector, and then she'd take over and run again. Um, I do think he'll be really hard to beat um, if he does run again, because I don't think any Democrats have been speaking out against him enough. I don't think um, Mass Dems has, um, you know, been um, speaking out against him nearly enough either. And I think a lot of that is because he is um, honestly not as far right as some of the Democrats in the state house are. And so if Mass Dems were to speak out against him, they'd also be speaking out against policies that those Democrats support too like letting the eviction moratorium expire. Sure, he, he's responsible for that, but so is state house leadership. And I think honestly, the problem with why people like Baker so much is because he hasn't really had to veto any progressive legislation um, besides, you know, like the Police Reform Act and the Roe Act that he did push back on a bit. Um, but he hasn't really had to veto much progressive legislation or shut down um, nearly anything that the Democrats are doing because, you know, they aren't passing progressive legislation that he would be able to veto. So I think, um, I don't know, the lack of, you know, a meaningful opposition party, the weakness of <laughs> Cal Walsh for governor, I don't think so, but um, that's very kind. Um, I think the lack of, you know, meaningful opposition and a powerful GOP in some ways has allowed mass Dems and a lot of state house Democrats to just shift further right because they don't need to define themselves against anyone. So someone like um, Colleen Gary is um, 
an anti-Black Lives Matter, um, pretty sure she's anti-LGBTQ and um, pro-life. And she's a Democrat and she caucuses with the Democrats. And that's just absolutely bizarre that um, someone like that is welcome in the party. Um, so I think we need to be pushing Democrats a lot further left. And so what I would look for in a candidate against Charlie Baker is someone who is willing to make those distinctions instead of making the only distinction voters see whether they're red or blue, because that's not enough of a reason for anyone to vote for you. You have to actually create distinctions between you and your opponent and show how you would improve people's lives. And I think there's so many things to criticize Charlie Baker for, especially his COVID response, um, you know, letting over 12,000 people die now um, is a huge disgrace and he hasn't had enough of a response at all. And so I think really having someone from the left who's been um, further left than candidates in the past against him should really be who we elect um, in a Democratic primary. Someone asked about uh, Sonia Chain Diaz, if she's angling to run for governor. I hadn't heard any rumors about that. She'd be an awesome candidate. I think she's one of the most progressive state senators and She's led on a lot of issues like police reform, and I think that would be super great. But um, I haven't seen anything that indicates she is, but um, that's definitely someone I'd consider supporting. Uh, I got another comment from Brady. He's had a lot of good ones. I saw your article on Beacon Hill transparency. What do you think needs to happen to fix Beacon Hill? That's a great question. So yeah, I'm um, an organizer with Act On Mass right now, and we have this campaign going on um, called the Transparency is Power campaign. And basically we have over um, almost 2000 volunteers, I think, in districts across the state, and we're organizing meetings between them and their state representatives and asking those representatives to vote for three amendments that we think would increase transparency on Beacon Hill. Um, I think there's a lot broken on Beacon Hill and transparency is just a small part of it. But um, the issue is a lot of votes and decisions are made behind closed doors. And it's really hard for people, especially young people, um, people of color, low income people who have historically been left behind from politics and excluded, especially hard for us to figure out what's going on and make our voices heard to our reps when, you know, bills are voted down in committees um, and we can't see what's happening or, um, you know, when bills are released and then voted on 24 hours later with no time, you know, to read them, to process them, to see what's inside and figure out how we stand and make our voices heard. So um, a lot of that stuff is just happening behind closed doors and it's really hard to make that, to give our input. Um, I'd say a lot of other stuff needs to happen too, specifically um, deconcentrating power um, or decentralizing power and taking more power away from the speaker. Um, right now the speaker appoints leadership positions and there's no pay parity. So those leadership positions um, means that people get an increase in their salary. So he controls the salary of, I believe, 87 representatives because um, there's 87 leadership positions and he appoints them all. So that's 54% of all reps and I think 66% of Democrats. So essentially he can leverage his power he has to demote anyone and therefore demote their salary um, by being able to appoint leadership. Um, so I think that's also a huge issue that he can just control how anyone votes. Mm -hmm. And of course, speakers have historically been more conservative than the rest of the state and then most other representatives. So that's just, those are just a few examples of how we can fix it. I think there's so, so much more that needs to be done. It's rotten to me that local towns and local cities with less money have higher transparency requirements than the state of Massachusetts. You know, it's, it's yeah. like there's two sets of rules. Like if I hit up my town, even the police, and ask for some information, legally they have to respond and give me yeah. that information if they can. 
Um, but you know, the state rep, state senator, they don't have to give you anything. They don't have to even on how they vote, like you said in committee, that's it's so frustrating to us who call them and ask them and, and beg them for the information and it just it's crazy. Yeah, it seems like a very basic ask. Um, you know, can we see how you vote? That's like a pretty fundamental part of government is having that sort of transparency between constituents and their legislators. So it's bizarre to see pushback from that, especially considering that the state Senate already has public committee votes. Why can't the House have the same? Um, so yeah, I think that's um, a really big issue. And like you were saying, um, local governments, um, city and town governments are subject to open meeting law that the state legislature exempts themselves from. And Massachusetts is also the only state where the, um, the legislature, the judiciary and the governor's office they're all exempt um, from public records law. So there is really a huge lack of transparency that a lot of other states don't have. That's something that we should try to get on the ballot. <laughs> I would love to see that. I don't know if who's got the money to do it. That's always the issue with this stuff. Hillary Diane has a great question, um, which is kind of where we're going already. We started talking about the, the speaker's position. Uh, we, we have a new House speaker. What do you, what do you think about Ron Mariano? the new house speaker and how it was done, Calla. Yeah, um, I have been pretty clear in that I'm not a fan of the new speaker. Um, I think he is way too conservative and is not gonna um, be a champion of progressive legislation at all. Um, he's definitely more conservative than some other house leadership. I think he was the only member of house leadership to vote against a millionaire's tax um, a few years ago that would have um, like raised money um, for the uh, or raise the tax rate um, for people with income over a million dollars, um, which I think is really bad. It seems like he has consistently stood with big pharma um, company executives over what the people actually want. Um, and also just the way he was elected, you know, there's this line of secession that um, has totally excluded anyone who isn't part of the establishment. And um, no progressives are really organizing and lifting up a viable progressive candidate for speaker. Um, like Councillor Mejia just said, this moment, yeah, requires the leadership of people of color. And there's a secession line of old, rich white men who are just lining up to become the next speaker and really excluding, especially people of color who have led on police reform and so many other issues in the state house, excluding them from even being proposed as potential candidates for speaker. Um, and I guess I would say I'm also really upset with the people who voted for him and the people who enable him. Um, I think a lot of people who sell themselves as progressive or leftist um, voted for him. And they've sort of explained it in what I feel like is gaslighting um, other progressives and claiming, oh, he promised that he'd like stand with us on this progressive issue. And then the next day in an interview, he said he didn't promise anything to people. Um, so I think there's really no reason for anyone to have voted for someone um, as conservative as someone who has stood against um, any progressive movement building um, like Mariano has. Um, but I guess this is more of a systemic issue and we need um, we need someone who will actually make the systemic change we need. So it doesn't matter who the speaker is. It matters um, having rank and file reps who don't have as much power to actually stand up and say, no, this is not okay because they have the power to change those rules. Thank you so much. Uh, a lot of good questions, a lot of good comments. Please keep them coming. We, we really appreciate them to add to the show. Um, we're speaking to Calla Wall. She worked on a lot of campaigns. You worked on the Ed Markey campaign, right? Correct? I did. You worked on the Elizabeth Warren campaign. You worked on the Yes on 3 campaign? I was just a volunteer. You were yeah. a volunteer at that point. 
And so when we say work too, because there is a difference, like some people are volunteers and some people are paid. Are you like paid staff at this, you know, at this point? I mean, you've, you've done a number of campaigns now. How does that work for you? Um, so I was an intern on the first two campaigns I worked on. I was an intern for the Warren campaign. Um, and then on the Markey campaign, during the primary, all I did was volunteer work. We had sort of um, a group called Students for Markey that wasn't officially affiliated with the campaign. So we were just working adjacently. Um, and that was super awesome because we basically got to run our own mini campaign, but just reaching out to youth and students. So I loved that. And then after the primary, I became um, a paid intern um, doing like digital communications, writing tweets um, for Ed's accounts. Um, and I also was a staffer on Jordan Meehan's campaign. Um, I was comms director was my official title um, for state representative in the 17th Suffolk district. And he ran a very competitive race against an incumbent, like yeah. almost one. Like that was, and it was a good campaign. Like you guys really, the messaging, and I, I liked how Jordan was always available too. Like he was hustling. You guys, you know, did a great job on that state rep campaign. Yeah, it was really fun. We were known for having the most fun um, phone banks in the state, um, which is, I think, a cool label to have. Um, but we were the first person. We're, we were the first campaign to ever challenge Kevin Honan, who is now one of the longest-serving reps in the House. He was a 34-year incumbent had never had a primary challenger before, and we still won 46% of the vote, which I think is a huge accomplishment in a district where he has such deep ties and has served there for so long. Um, the fact that, you know, we were a challenger from the left and able to get that much support really shows that people are demanding um, more progressive reps in the state house. It almost guarantees, I think, that he'll have a challenger next time, whether it's Jordan or somebody else in that district. So awesome race and you've done such great work you you're you know now you've got you know other responsibilities as well but campaigns that you like or you're supporting right now because there's so much happening locally i think with upcoming elections where what are you looking at are there any campaigns that you want to shout out right now or even organizations or people doing good work yeah um so i guess what i'm working on the most right now is the act on mass campaign um for more transparency and that's a really cool issue because candidates can be complicated. People are really complicated and they can have different stances on different issues. This is one super basic issue that 90% of the state agrees on transparency. So um, I definitely encourage people to um, go to actonmass.org and join their district team and meet with their rep and ask them to support the amendments we're campaigning for. Um, as for actual candidates in the 19th Suffolk, um, their special election, um, the primary is on March 2nd, I believe. And I'm supporting Juan Pablo Jaramillo. Um, and he is a really cool candidate from Revere. He's a union organizer. He was a huge supporter on the Marquee campaign. And um, I think he'll be a really great state rep. Um, so that's definitely who I'm supporting there. And as for other candidates, um, I think there's some really cool people running in Boston. First of all, Kendra Hicks in District 6. She that's right. started running such a cool campaign that she got the incumbent to drop out of the race, which I think is just awesome. And she um, has such important plans that Boston really needs, and she's not afraid to be bold and say, you know, we need to defund the police. We need um, we need rent control. We need anti-capitalist policies and lawmakers on um, on the city council. Um, and then Dave Halbert is another great candidate that I'm supporting um, for city council at large. Um, he ran in 2017 and uh, or 2019 and came really close. Um, and I think he'd be a really great um, candidate 
where he'd be a really great city councilor. Um, and he's also a voice that we really need on the city council. Because right now there's only one black man who's an elected official in Boston, and that's Russell Holmes, who's a state rep. So I think his voice would be really important to have um, on the council. And he has experience working um, in all different levels of government. Um, he worked for Deval Patrick um, when he was governor. And yeah, he's a fantastic candidate. Um, and I've gotten to know him and definitely encourage people to check out his campaign and vote for him um, when they're voting in the at-large city council election. Definitely going to have him on uh this program very soon, hopefully, if if they you know if they set the date, I'm I'm ready to have David Halbert on. Definitely, I've been talking to his campaign, and obviously, uh, you know, the, the other candidates to the all that you mentioned. I would love to have every single one of them on the show. And now I'm wondering if you'll actually come back, Calla, and like interview them with me because I feel like you're going to have questions that I don't have and insights, and you have so much political knowledge. So I, I would definitely like welcome that too, if you would uh, entertain that. Um, we, we also have another question from uh, the city councilor at large, Julia Mejia, Boston uh, city councilor. She says, is she supporting Julia Mejia at large reelection? I absolutely am. Um, I think councilor Mejia has um, been a really unique voice to have on the council in that she is trying to bring in people who have never been seen or heard by government before. Um, young people, low-income people, people of color, people from neighborhoods that campaigns don't even try to reach out to. So I'm absolutely um, supporting her for re-election and I'm excited to see what she'll be able to do um, with two more years on the council. I think it, the fact that, you know, she is really just working so hard there and not, you know, considering a mayoral run or anything like that um, shows how committed she is to actually, you know, continuing to serve um, the people and work on the important issues. I love her. I mean, we've had her on a bunch of times. I like her as a person. I like how how fiery she is, but also like how strong she is. She's really serious, but she's also very nice and she's uh doing the work. You can watch her do the work. Like she's doing the police accountability stuff. She's really focused on um not, you know, the whole community, representing everybody. Uh, she's got a, a phrase, I want to say it, but I, it's not coming to mind. My speech issues are acting up right now. So is it all means all? Is that what you're there you go? That's what I'm yeah. talking about, Calla. That's why I want you to come back. <laughs> it's like you you nailed it. Thank you. Say it again for me. All means all. All means all. Yeah, because she is exactly what I was looking for. Everyone. Um, there's so many people I feel like when you think of Boston and then you see who's politically involved, it's really not representative of the city. So she's really trying to change that and bring everyone along. Um, no matter, you know, how much experience they have in politics at all. Yeah, she's made some more comments too. Uh, uh, thank you so much to City Councilor Julia Mejia for watching and commenting on this live video as well, live stream. I want to thank everyone who's uh, been listening, sharing it, commenting on it. And I especially want to thank our guest, Calla Walsh, for being here today. Is there anything else you wanted to kind of talk about, you know, with this Trump situation, the world at large, young people getting involved? I would just say that, you know, it's now or never, um, and it's intimidating for young people to think um, about going um, to a campaign event or a protest or being the only young person in a space, but I think you just have to jump in and go for it, um, and you won't regret it, um, and this moment is really demanding that we um, step up and take that risk and get involved Um and yeah, I think that now that we will likely have, you know, a democratic trifecta 
in the national government, that means that local politics are more important than ever. And so now is the time to not only keep paying attention to what's going on in the White House, but also to get involved in what's happening in your community. And, um, you know, researching local candidates, um, figuring out when your local elections are. Um, hi, Anthony. Um, Anthony just left a comment. Um, but yeah, now is like a fantastic moment for us to not only be working on pro passing progressive legislation through Congress, but also, you know, passing citywide Green New Deals, um, making public transit free um, at the city level and, um, you know, fighting for rent control um, in our states and taxing rich people, um, trying to get those bills through the state legislature. Um, all of those issues matter just as much um, on the local level as they do nationally. You had mentioned something earlier about how it, it was actually fun to be involved in politics. And that's the way I feel like I wish I could do more of it. I wish it was like, you know, cause it is fun. Like I, I think people have that misconception from the outside. Cause all they're watching is people fighting on TV, but when you actually go to events and you talk to people and you get involved, it is fun, isn't it? It totally is. Um, I think the thing I love about campaigns is that it's not just about winning votes on election day. It's really about building relationships with people and, um, you know, building lasting infrastructure in the communities you organize in so that it's not just like the campaign leaves after election day and forgets about all those voters. It's actually about, you know, continuously organizing and trying to build power. Um, so even if your candidate loses, that doesn't necessarily mean that your movement is over, that you didn't make an impact and you actually form so many strong relationships and get so much better connected um, to your community and yeah, the place you live. Um, and I think that um, meeting other young people who work on campaigns has been one of the most exciting parts of that for me because you got to form pretty unique connections with them. Now uh, a name just came out, Ricardo. I think he's talking about Ricardo Arroyo. He's also been floated as a possible uh, candidate for mayor. That's going to be tough for me because I do like Ricardo and his family, the Arroyos. And I don't know what I would, you know, I'm not voting there, so I really don't have to make a decision, but who would I support? You know, Michelle Wu or Ricardo? Mm -hmm. I noticed you didn't mention him, but there's a question related to him. So maybe you can talk about that angle too, but there's a question. Do you think Ricardo's home rule around skipping the special election will pass? Yeah, I saw somewhere that he said he wasn't running. Um, okay. I like him a lot as a counselor. I think he should definitely stay there um, longer since he's doing really great work. Um as for the home rule, so yeah, he um, is requesting the state legislature to pass um, a home rule petition that um, will mean that there won't be a special election, that the mayoral election will just happen in November as it's scheduled. And his reasoning is that um, it's like a public health burden um, for the city to have multiple special elections and preliminaries um, during the pandemic. And also that'll exclude um, you know, candidates who aren't already well-connected and wealthy from running and it'll make it harder for communities that are historically disenfranchised, like people of color um, and low-income communities to participate in the election. And um, I don't know if it'll pass. I think, um, I don't know a lot about um, like past situations where the state legislature has passed similar um, home rule petitions, just because I think it's so unprecedented to be in a pandemic. And um, yeah, special elections favor white candidates. Um, they With favor big money. Yeah, yeah, with the big money, which is, you know, we know who that is. Um, I'm surprised yeah. Flaherty hasn't, he's got, I think, the second largest account in Boston. I mean, Mayor Walsh obviously had the largest campaign fund. It's 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 about the money. It's really a lot of times. Um, you know, another thing, too, about if, if, if they do, 
you know, if he if he gets that passed, I, I like the idea that Kim Janey's the mayor for the rest of the year until the election. I mean, having a black woman as mayor, I think that's an added bonus. I'll say it. I don't think anyone else is gonna, you know, say that that's an office because that might be favoritism or whatever. But as a as a citizen, I like that. Uh, Brady also had a comment. He said, as a DS. A member, what do you think needs to happen to build its political power like in New York City? That's a great question. Um, so I joined DSA in October and I definitely um, am not a DSA expert yet by any means, but um, I do think it's been so impressive what the New York City DSA did, which if you don't know, basically they had a huge slate of candidates um, at all different levels. So like state rep, state senate um, and all these primaries. Um, and they won big time. They elected um, almost all their slate and um, really had a great campaign running. And so I think in Boston, um, one thing DSA needs to do a lot um, more of is working with unions because I think there's a lot of union power in Boston. And so getting more um, like anti-capitalist um, organizing and working alongside with unions and trying to build um, more union power um, is going to be really important. Um, one thing that DSA is working on right now is the Greater Boston Tenants Union which I highly recommend people join if you're a tenant or you live in a big building and want to organize with your neighbors. Um, I've been canvassing with them before. And um, I think, yeah, working to build more union power and working class power, there's sort of a stereotype that a lot of DSA members are just like wealthy, like people with PhDs, which I think definitely there are a number of DSA members who fit that, um, who fit that, um, you know, persona. But um, I do think, you know, all anti-capitalist movements um, have to, come from power in the working class. And so actually building that power um, from the ground up is going to be where any success electorally or non-electorally comes from. I want to mention uh, DSA, what it is, because I think some of our audience may not know. It's what, Democratic Socialist of America? Is that what it is? Yeah. So the Boston chapter is one of the biggest in the country. Um, and it's Boston, yeah, it's Boston Democratic Socialists, but members are from basically anywhere in um, the greater Boston area. And yeah, I agree. Building more diversity is going to be super important. Um, I know DSA tends to be like a white male dominated space. Um, so I think that reaching out to more communities um, and like, you know, actually um, making sure that everything we're doing comes from, you know, building power in the working class is really important. Absolutely. This is a great show. I, I really appreciate your time, Kala, on a Saturday. Um, I guess one last question is what do you, where do you, you're at 16 right now. You've been involved in these major campaigns and local campaigns you're you're heavily like you have a real experience already where do you see yourself like in 5 10 15 20 years do you even think like that or is you just you're still i mean maybe it's just too early to ask that because you're just getting you know you're just young i had no idea what i was doing at 16 i wouldn't want to be pressured but I, i'm gonna ask it anyways do you do you think like that um i don't think too far ahead of time I definitely want to keep working in politics. That's um, that's where um, my passions lie. And um, I think that's definitely what I want to study. Um, I will definitely be going to college um, at some point. So um, I want to continue to be politically involved. I think specifically what I'm doing will really depend on, you know, what the moment requires and what the country, what the future of our country ends up looking like. Um, just knowing that we have until 2030 to take action on climate change before it's irreversible. That's going to have a huge impact on my future and honestly affects anything that I think about when I think 10, 15 years ahead. Um, but I know I want to keep um, 
keep working um, in politics, especially, um, you know, building long-term progressive power in the state house. I think that will take quite a few years of work. Um, so that's definitely something I see myself doing in the future, at least in 2022. Um, and probably I will end up retiring in another country. Um, and yeah, that's that's all I have planned out. <laughs> you you want to retire in a, what country do you want to retire in? Do you know? Do you have a specific country? I don't know. Definitely not. Just definitely anywhere but America. Anywhere but America. Yeah. Any any place that will take us at this point, because that, that's I think big issue. If you don't have big money, they don't want you. Number one, and number two is you know now we all have this trunks Trump stank stench on us. You know what I mean? And the worst COVID in the in the world. So. That too. That's that's part of the stench. I think you know. But I want to thank you so much again for taking the time to be here uh you you, you it's funny because you've now uh city council julia mejia has kind of endorsed you now you endorse her and now she's endorsing you she said i like her she's cool thank you that's very kind yeah and i feel the same way like you're i, I liked you before this from twitter and everything i see and um you also before i let you go you also have this document that you put out um that is tracking campaigns and who's raising money Tell us about that, where people could find that. Yeah, um, that is on my Twitter. I posted it again yesterday just because there was a lot of chaos with the mayoral race. So I updated some stuff and posted it again. Um, it's just called Greater Boston Candidates 2021 Spreadsheet. Um, and yeah, I care a lot about like political education and making learning about campaigns and elections and different issues more accessible, um, especially to young people, since I've found that a lot of stuff isn't accessible to me as a young person. Um, and I think a lot of people in power, um, especially reps in the state house, are relying on young people and um, just their constituents in general um, to be uninformed and unengaged and not really being proactive and holding them accountable. So when no one's watching and they think that we're just too dumb to know about anything, then they can get away with, you know, um, making laws behind closed doors and um, not passing progressive legislation. So um, working on stuff like that spreadsheet um, on like guides to learning more about the state house um, is definitely like a personal thing I'm really interested in because I want to make stuff more accessible um, and I want to make everyone just wake up to these issues and be able to easily learn about them and then actually start taking action. Now I keep saying one more last question. I always have one more. This will be the last one. Um, when I was growing up in the like eighties, let's say, um, when I was a young person, which was a long time ago at this point, but, um, you know, it's, it's basically politically things got really apathetic. People checked out, everything's corrupt, you know, like, do you, how, how are young people today? Do they feel like they have power? Do they, do they realize the power they have? Do you think, or not? Is it still kind of like the average young person that you talk to? I think a lot of young people feel super left behind by politicians and um, just government um, and, you know, electoral systems in general, um, just because we're so affected by issues um, like gun safety, which we've seen very, very little action on um, from the federal government, um, climate, barely any action. Um, and that's definitely left us without a lot of hope. Um, but I think having social media, having platforms where we can communicate with each other and spread the word about these different issues has really made an impact on being um, more engaged, um, even just learning about issues. I can't imagine 
um, I'd be as politically involved as I am now if I hadn't, um, you know, been shown a lot of stuff on social media and had just constant, you know, information coming towards me. Um, I also think there's negative impacts of though, because um, at least my generation, Gen Z, has experienced a lot of traumatic events and we've just had to process them through social media, um, through just constantly having information and like horrific pictures being bombarded at us. And it has sort of, um, I think, desensitized us a bit and um, trivialized the um, like the seriousness of these events, I think. Um, at least thinking of like all the things that have impacted me, um, like the pandemic, like the coup attempts, um, like school shootings, um, the Boston Marathon bombing, even that happened when I was eight, just thinking about how all those issues um, happening when I grow up and still having to go to school and like um, just act like, I don't know, there is, there aren't crises going on has really changed the way we look at them. And I hope that we don't become so desensitized that we stop, you know, demanding accountability or demanding better from the government. That that is the struggle, and it's gotten worse. It's like people were saying, like, I'm watching the videos and I can't believe it's real. I can't believe it's true. Like, because yeah. they've watched too many movies. They've watched too many. Everything's entertainment. When everything's entertainment, it's hard to feel. Yeah, and it's a coping mechanism too. I mean, being online so much, Gen Z, we use like memes and like humor to process a lot of what's going on when they're actually super sad, horrific events. Um, and I just, especially my younger siblings, for example, when this sort of stuff happens, I just want to tell them like, this is not normal. Do not get used to this. You should always expect better and demand so much better. And so this is something really bad that's happening, but it's not how it's always going to be. And if you, um, if you like can process that and acknowledge that, then we can actually, you know, start to work towards something better. So it's just not letting yourself get desensitized because desensitization leads to disengagement. And then that leads to people doing whatever they want because no one's holding them accountable. It's, that is the struggle right now. I, I really feel that. I, I thank you so much again for coming on today, Kala. And uh, all of our listeners and viewers, I guess we should call them listeners. They listen later on podcasts now. They they view it on uh, the stream right now. I guess that's you know, it's funny because we speak. It's we when when I first started out, it was all listeners, and then we went to video, and now it's some listeners and some viewers. So what do you say? What do you what do you call them? The audience. The audience exactly. The audience. I want to thank you, Kala, for helping me out to get through this show, and uh, you 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 saved me with uh, all means all. I love that. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great um, slogan. It is, and and I admit I, that's the thing. I like, I know what I want to say, and then I can't think of it. Is that old age? <laughs> does that happen to you? It does. It does. Right. I think it's a pandemic. Yeah, it's, I think so. I think I really think a lot of weirdness in all of us right now is is pandemic related and and Trump related in some in the election, and just you know what people are going through. You hear the stories as well, like you. I, I really feel for people who are struggling right now. There's yeah. like, so again, I want to, I'm, I'm saying it for the hundredth time. I want to thank you again, Kala Walsh for being on the show and hope to have you again. And I want to thank all our listeners. Uh, we'll, we'll, we're going to do a lot more broadcasts. Hopefully I'll have uh, city council, Julia Mejia coming on again. And some of the other great candidates that uh, Kala mentioned tonight. Uh, we plan to do a lot more coming up and I uh, hope everyone is safe and, has a great rest of their weekend. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on.